Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. Today's episode, we'll be talking about who we are, our plans for the pod, and the principles we'll use to guide us. So, hello, Jay. Hey, Goldstein. Um, so, since it's the first episode of the pod, um, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about yourself. About me? Yeah, about you. Well, I would love to. So, I'm Jay. I've lived in Montreal for my whole adult life. Uh, I speak French. I was a bit of a wayward youth. I had a bad drinking problem. I spent my teens and my early 20s running around being a sketchy punk. Um, then I got sober and ended up being a little bit less sketchy. I'm also getting my master's degree in political anthropology. I wrote my thesis on far-right extremism in Quebec. I've also been active in the uh, recovery world in various ways, mostly through 12-step programs, but also with some community activism stuff workshops, writing, and stuff like that. Um, I've been thinking of myself as a communist of some kind since I first really heard about communism. Um, and I've always also been very attached to anarchist thinking, uh, theory, philosophy. The orientation that I've settled on is kind of a pragmatic but principled kind of pan-socialism, I guess. Like, I support socialist projects in general um, and more communist versions in particular, and I do so with an anarchist outlook. Anarchism is very broad, but uh, it means that in practice, I believe power has to justify itself. Um, democracy is preferable, preferable to hierarchy, and we should treat authority with skepticism. And also that our very long-term goal should be a more or less stateless socialist society. But anyways, my claim to being able to talk with any authority about anything, um, I think, is that I am trained as a cultural and political anthropologist. And I know a lot about recovery and trying to live a good and happy life. I'd say some of the benefits of my anthropology background are that, like, I was trained to be very curious about the world and to see the water I swim in, so to speak, um, and to notice blind spots, areas that other people don't subject to analysis. The same way, like, a, a native English speaker doesn't analyze or even notice English grammatical rules. Like, for example, how you have to say a nice old Italian lady, not an Italian old nice lady. You know, native English speakers know this, but they don't know why they know this. Anthropologists are always trying to notice things like that, um, but on a cultural level. So to give an example of something like this, on a cultural level, like most people might say, you know, America is democracy with two major parties. But an anthropologist might say, Americans believe in equality called democracy, through which they believe that the ruling class represents in some way the popular will um so those are kind of like quite different ways of seeing the same thing and on that note i'd say anthropologists also are trained to treat what people say about themselves as only one data point and not even the, always the most accurate one so the classic example of this is if you ask people like in your culture what are the meals they will be likely to say something like uh breakfast is at eight and it's cereal or eggs Lunch is at noon, and then supper is at six. 
But if you watch them, they might get up at 10, they drink a coffee, they skip breakfast, they eat a sandwich while they're walking to work at three, and then they order a pizza when they get home at 10. So basically we're very suspicious and we wanna, we wanna analyze and question everything. Um, yeah, and then, you know, when it comes to recovery, I think there's a couple things. One is just that, I guess, I overcame really debilitating alienation and self-destruction. And I don't think alienation and self-destruction are unique to addicts and alcoholics. You know, I think they're rampant. And addiction is one manifestation, but going through life totally numbed out on, you know, video games, like porn, Netflix, that's another. Um, drinking the Kool-Aid and embracing competitive consumerism is another. And so is embracing cancel culture and, and competitive wokeness. I, I think it stems from all the same antecedents and even operates a lot like an addiction. Which brings me to the second thing, which is that, you know, actually quitting isn't even the first step of the 12 steps. You know, it's like the zeroth step. Um, and the steps, the whole program, whether it's AA or NA or Al-Anon or ACA or whatever, is to help people stay quit, but more importantly, to help them overcome alienation and self-destruction and learn to live a full and happy and fulfilled life, you, you know, to reach their potential and, and self-actualize. And it does this through teaching a, a set of quite basic principles, you know, ones that it shares with a lot of therapy and some spiritual movements and so on. And then it hammers them home over and over and over again in the form of meetings. And they're principles that anybody can benefit from, you know. So we're going to talk more about that a lot. Um, but I think, yeah, 12-step models can offer a lot of wisdom and offer a counterpoint to some of the unhealthiness uh, that can be seen around us. So that's um, that's mostly what I got about myself. How about you, Clementine? Who are you? Thanks for sharing, Jay. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm Clementine. Um, and I primarily see myself as a writer. Um, I'm a self-employed writer. I've been making zines for like two decades now. Um, I made my first zine when I was like 13. And now I'm you know, making a living off making zines. So writing and self-publishing are really, really important to me. Um, and yeah, like similarly to Jay, like I have, there's some overlap in our stories. Like I'm also um, an alcoholic and for me, like, yeah, like I think my, my journey towards writing um, is actually really rooted in all of this too. Like I grew up in an abusive family where my needs weren't being met. Um, and I was pretty crazy because of that. I ended up dropping out of high school really young and moving out really young. Um, and I found zines and that was a place where I like really like found a place for me to be able to write and like think through like the trauma that I had experienced in my childhood. Um, yeah. And when I moved to the city um, when I was 16 because I had dropped out of high school. I went to like a series of alternative high schools in um, Toronto, but because I was like on my own and like super unstable, I never really was able to stay and I didn't finish high school. But during my time there, um, that was like my first introduction to basically uh, woke shit and like what we're going to be calling the nexus, which we will talk about in more detail later. But I was sort of had the beginnings of an indoctrination into like an identity politics um, 
way of looking at the world, um, like way back in like 2002. But that was pretty brief for me because I dived headfirst into um, alcoholism. And so I spent many years like really fucked up and um, really crazy and then got sober when I was 25. And so a lot of my work and what I do is about trauma. It's about healing. Um, and like, I also have a 12 step background. So a lot of it is grounded in the principles um, that I've learned through 12 step work. And a lot of it is, is based in like years and years of therapy and like um, a lot of like self psychoeducation that I have done to understand trauma. Um, and so my writing is largely about like helping people who have trauma try to figure out how to live a good life. So that's basically like what I do. Um, and yeah, I mean, once I got sober, um, I found myself back in um, because I'm queer and I guess we'll talk about that. Um, both of us have experience in extensively, <laughs> extensive, extensive experience in queer world. And so because of that, um, you know, once I got sober and I stopped being in this like really fucked up environment that I'd been in for so many years, like I landed in kind of back into this like identity politics, uh, woke like framework because I'm queer. And so that's like basically what was available for me. And so there's a lot of grappling around like ethics and like principles and like how to be a good person and also shame and like dealing with all of the shame that I felt from like living so outside of my principles for the many years that I was an alcoholic. Well, I still am an alcoholic, but the many years that I was in active alcoholism. Um, and then, yeah, trying to make sense out of all of that. Um, so yeah, now, um, I think all of these things have kind of come to a head for me in terms of my healing and my own recovery. I've been sober for like eight and a half years and I've gotten to a point where like I really realized that like unfortunately these social justice like community that I'm in is like super dysfunctional and unhealthy in a lot of ways and there's a lot of stuff going on that really is not in alignment with my own principles and values and also what I understand about recovery and healing um, and like living in the world as a responsible person. And so, yeah, if you want to know more about my work, um, you can, we'll put links and stuff for people to like look into it, but I have a website, which is clementinemorgan.com and like my, um, my main zine series is called Fucking Magic. I like the word fuck, obviously. Um, it's in the title of most of my work. <laughs> um, yeah, so I feel like that's a pretty good, I don't know if I missed anything about who I am, but I feel like that's a pretty good introduction for now. Yeah, I'm sure over the course of the pod, we will uh, fill everyone in on everything about our lives. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with what we might call cancel culture and, and how you sort of came to a more uh, critical stance with that? Sure. So... Yeah, I guess I kind of talked about it a little bit, but basically, like, you know, I kind of had this, like, whiplash. Like, I kind of went in and out and in and out again. Um, but basically, like, when I was really young and I first discovered um, identity politics and, like, this way of looking at things, 
you know, we were taught like really like in my high school, like when I was like 16, because I went to a, I, after I dropped out, I went to a high school for kids who had been driven out of the school system because of homophobia. So it was really like based in identity politics, a lot of the stuff that they taught us. And, you know, like we were encouraged to see all of our social interactions through that lens. And I was starting to really internalize that. And then because of my trauma and my addiction, I went and was literally like outside of that world for like nine years or so, um, totally being crazy and like, um, you know, acting in all sorts of ways that would definitely get me canceled. Um, Like I was, you know, pretty awful to lots and lots of people. And so then when I um, got sober and like ended up back in this in this world that is like really based upon um, identity politics and cancel culture, I was like really full of a lot of um, shame and fear about what like what that meant for me, because I felt like, you know, if people knew about my past, I would definitely be canceled. Like there wouldn't be a way for me to like move forward um, with my life, especially as a writer and somebody who, who wants to do public work, like having done the things that I've done. So I grappled with it a lot, but I kind of came to this belief that like I could be good and that would like redeem me and save me somehow that like, if I just worked really, really hard and figured out like all the correct ways to act that I could be good. But that was going on at the same time that I was doing all of this, like really authentic work in the 12 steps and in therapy And I was actually learning like a really different version of integrity and responsibility that does not line up with this message about being good and compliant and obedient that I was learning in the social justice culture that I'm in. And so I grappled with that for like five years. And then it was around five years sober that I started to really genuinely question this stuff and to realize that like the healthier that I got, the more that I was like uncomfortable with the ways that we behave in social justice culture and the ways that we treat each other like we're disposable, the ways that we practice like a really rigid dogma, the ways that we like will throw like huge harassment campaigns at people who disagree on something or who have been accused of something. And so, yeah, I started to become in the last couple of years more open about my beliefs about these things in my writing. And it was still really scary. And like, that's something that I think we both want to be like really transparent about and doing this podcast is that like talking about these things is like super scary Mm -hmm. and it is frightening to like make a podcast called fucking canceled and to like be honest about these things. Um, because there's a lot of people who aren't even going to listen to what we're saying. They're just going to listen to what the topic is and be like, wow, that's typical. (laughs) Yeah. These people are fucked, you know? Um, And we really want to move past that and actually be able to have this conversation because it's a conversation that really needs to be had. But yeah, so like in the past, um, like couple of years, like I've started to write about these things in my zines and like on social media and, um, I've started to become a bit more brazen about it. But recently, like this past summer, I experienced a really intense, um, cancellation campaign and I don't want to get into the details of it because I actually don't want to like validate or justify the kinds of abusive behaviors that go along with cancel culture by acting as if it's a legitimate thing that I need to address or answer to because I don't um and I feel really strongly about that but I do want to say that like yeah I was like pretty intensely harassed um over some pretty minor um things 
And in fact, I didn't do anything wrong or anything deserving of harassment. Um, and like it resulted in such a huge blow up in my personal life. Like the consequences were so extreme and I was abandoned by like many friends and all of this is going on in, you know, a situation at a time where we have people like putting the, the term cancel culture in quotation marks and like pretending like cancel culture is not a real thing. Meanwhile, I know firsthand from my lived experience that it is a very real thing. And I've seen it happen to other people too, not just myself. And I've, I've stood by and I've watched. And even in, in the past, like I've participated in these cancellations. Um, and they have huge consequences on people's lives. Um, and so, you know, this was like a breaking point for me and like a turning point where I was just like, no, I don't... Um, I don't want to take part in this culture anymore. Like I really want something else and something better for the left. And um, yeah, we're going to talk about it lots in the podcast, but like there's so many ways in which this stuff is cynically used to like totally undermine the possibility of any kind of solidarity um, and to really just like justify like so much abusive and harmful behavior while pretending like it's righteousness and it's like justice. Um, so... Yeah. After that, like I was like, you know, I'm not going to bow down and be compliant and do what I'm told because I've been canceled. Um, I'm going to continue on with my life and I'm going to talk about how this behavior is like really harmful and not acceptable. And so that's what I've been doing. And then, you know, Jay and I have had so many conversations on this topic and have so much to say about this topic that we decided it was time to make a podcast. Um, do you have other things to to add to this or... Yeah, I mean, I could talk about my own experiences with it, too. Yeah. I think um, I've always been pretty critical of the sort of, like, combination of um, identitarianism and cancel culture. Um, although I will say that in my early 20s, I was kind of most most in that world. or I was trying to make it in that world, let's say. Um, but I can never keep my fucking mouth shut. And, um, you know, I would point out when things... <laughs> were contradictory or didn't make sense or weren't even trying to make sense. Um, I would say maybe we can come up with, you know, more, more coherent ways of thinking about this or whatever. And, and people would often get quite upset about that. Um, and I basically just kept finding myself being low key canceled, like over and over again. And eventually, yeah, like, you know, I've experienced a lot of, um, yeah, cancellation, slander, harassment connected to this stuff. Um, so that's, yeah, on a personal level, that's kind of my beef with it. Um, I think like, I don't know, I, I once tried to participate in a cancellation, um, or like a call out of like somebody who had been very like, you know, had treated my friend really poorly. Um, but people quickly messaged me to let me know that I wasn't allowed to, to do call outs because I myself was problematic. So I was like, okay, I guess this is not for me, you know? Um, <laughs> But that was, that was a long time ago. Um, but yeah, and philosophically, like, it's just always driven me crazy because so often it's internally inconsistent and contradictory. Um, it, it functions very cultishly in a lot of ways um, that, leave, that leaves people feeling very badly about themselves and others. <laughs> um, and it works to shut down important diversity of thought, I think, on the left. Like, there, there's many topics that very smart people are very afraid to talk openly about um, because the consequences of just speaking about it, like regardless of what you say, um, can be very intense. Um, 
And so, yeah, philosophically, I feel like I'm just, I'm opposed to that whole, that whole dynamic, you know? Um, and yeah, on a, on a practical political level, it's becoming more and more clear that the ruling class is happy to adopt identitarianism if it means throwing people off their fucking trail. Um, and also that identitarianism is being used to divide the left and also to attack like real socialists uh, whenever they pop up. Um, so for that reason, I think that we need to start articulating um, a, a different model of the left and we have to make it appealing to people. Um, and yeah, I'm, I also want to say that we, we recognize that many, many people, if not most, if not almost all of the people involved in sort of like cancel culture, identitarianism stuff, have good intentions or mostly good intentions. Like I think that they sincerely believe that what they're doing is, is good, you know, that it's a form of like um, fighting power. Um, and I also think that within that mass of people, many, many, many of them disagree with what they see as the excesses mm -hmm. of cancel culture and identitarianism. Um, however, most of those people are caught up in the idea that um, you can sort of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you can, you can kind of control it so that it's not like excessive, but that the underlying logic of it is, is sound or good. Um, and I think that we've come to believe that that isn't true and that the underlying logic of identitarianism and cancel culture are harmful. Um, and that they can't really be controlled. And that if anyone does end up controlling them, it will be people with a lot of power, um, which means the ruling class. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. Like we're not, we don't see ourselves as being opposed to people who are caught up in identitarianism and cancel culture. We're opposed to the practice of those forms of politics. Yeah, and I think that like it's very um clear to me that like there's a lot of people who might be listening to this who feel a lot of defensiveness or fear come up when we talk about these things um because it's sort of like for two reasons I think one because it's like a thought prime <laughs> and we're like literally not allowed to critique these things and people who critique these things experience punishment and even those who like entertain the idea um, of critiquing these things or listening to people who critique these things can experience punishment. So there can be like a lot of fear. Um, but also um, another aspect of it is that, you know, people are really committed to um, ending domination and exploitation and harm that people are experiencing, which obviously like are tied up with systems like racism and sexism and homophobia and all of these things. And like, we also oppose those things. Um, we just actually think that the way to um, to oppose those things is not through identitarianism and 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 cancel culture. So we're going to say a lot more about that over the course of the podcast. But we just want people to know that, like, if you're grappling and you're like confused and like you know you really believe in like some aspects of it, but then other aspects feel really wrong. That like we've been there and we have like moved through all of that confusion over the course of like many years. Um, and we're definitely not coming from like a judgmental 
or condemning place. In fact, we really want to open up the space for conversation for people to be able to talk through like what they're feeling and thinking. Um, and we want to be, yeah, just like open with how we've got to the places where we are with these ideas. Absolutely. And so, yeah, if you've made it this far, congratulations. Um, <laughs> welcome. We, we welcome you and we love and cherish you also. Yeah. And also I want to say like, you know, I don't know, I got an email this morning and I'm getting more and more of these from people who have been canceled. Um, and this person, you know, had actually done something abusive and, and they, they mentioned that to me in the email but, you know, they're experiencing a huge amount of, like, ostracization and harassment and shaming and they're full of shame. And they just messaged me and were like, it's, like, really nice to know that there's somebody who doesn't think I'm bad, you know? And so if you've been canceled, if you are afraid of being canceled, if you've canceled other people and you feel conflicted about that, we just want to be like, welcome, you know? You're welcome here. And we don't think you're bad. We don't think you're bad. Um... Okay, so I feel like that's like a pretty good sort of summary or I mean, it's a summary of some of the stuff we're going to be talking about and our experiences um, sort of getting to this place. And now we just want to talk a little bit more concretely about the goals of the podcast and um, what we're planning on doing with it. And obviously, this is just going to be like a brief summary and we'll get a lot more into it over the course um, of the different episodes. But basically, um, this podcast has three main goals. And because we are 12-steppers, um, we're, we're frequently grounding things in, like, 12-step thought <laughs> and 12-step isms. Um, and so basically, um, you, can, you can think of this as um, what the left is like. What we're going to do about it. And then what we hope for the left to be once we've done that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so for the first one, what the left is like, this is going to be us offering an analysis and a critique of a phenomenon on the, on the left that we call the nexus. And so we've already started talking about this, but basically the nexus is a combination of identitarianism or identity politics, um, social media and cancel culture. Yeah. And I think that we've come to understand that these three things really function in a very interesting way because they they kind of prop up each other and create this other thing that is greater than the sum of its parts um so to speak it's a it's like a dynamic system that is made up of the interactions of those three uh th those three things identitarianism cancel culture and social media and to give an example of how that works it's just that like you know um cancel culture plus social media let's say without identitarianism is that's just bullying. That's, mm -hmm. that's just like high school kids being shitty to each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you know, identitarianism plus social media, but without cancel culture, that's just people having discussions. That, that's just people with a particular view of the world, like talking to each other on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and identitarianism plus cancel culture without social media. So taking place purely like offline that's just kind of like, I don't know, the anarcho-punk scene in like the 90s. <laughs> so like, you know, people sort of like being shitty to each other and like cold shouldering each other at, at, at crust punk shows or whatever. But like it, do, it never goes further than your local scene of like vegan, like, <laughs> like squatters or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, but when those three things are brought together, especially under 
the auspices of neoliberalism and like capitalism, what you get is this whole other thing. And we've been calling that the nexus. Yeah. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot to unpack there. And I feel like, you know, there's, there's many other thinkers who have talked about various aspects of the nexus that we're going to pull in and talk about their ideas. Um, and we are also going to bring forward some of our own theorizing um, on this topic because both of us are, are writers and thinkers and we spend a lot of time um, theorizing about this. Um, so we're going to be talking about that over the course. And we basically just want to like bring forward this concept and this idea as a way of making sense of a lot of the shit that we see going on on the left these days and like how intense it's gotten. Like it's literally become like a type of hegemony um, in which a lot of the, the rules of the nexus are just, if you're in these scenes, they're just like taken for granted now. And we know when people are breaking these rules um, and we punish them for it. Um, but when you're outside of it and you're not um, super like enmeshed in these in in the nexus then this stuff can seem like really bizarre like for people who are not very online when i try to explain to them what happened to me with my cancellation this summer they literally can't understand it like it's it's completely bizarre to them whereas for people who are deep within it it makes sense because we've seen this kind of thing happen over and over and over again and we haven't actually um exposed it to much like critical thought or examination, often because we're way too afraid to, because we see what the consequences are when people do. Um, so we want to create a space on the left where we can openly talk about these dynamics. Um, it's really, really important because the fact that we're not allowed to talk about them means that we can't resist them at all. Um, so that's like the first aspect. Um, yeah, and I guess we want to we be very clear that our critique of what we're calling the nexus comes specifically from a leftist perspective and that we have less than no time for right-wing whining about, you know, about how like Marxists have taken over the universities or whatever, because they fucking haven't. Yeah. <laughs> Liberals have taken over the universities yeah. and everything else. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we are we are leftists who believe strongly in the final abolition of racial hierarchy, oppressive gender structures of all kinds, um, you know, national chauvinism, um, colonialism, and all of these systems of domination that have injured hundreds of millions of people. Um, throughout history and and yeah so we just want to make that extremely clear and and say that we're offering or what we hope to offer is an alternative way of looking at this stuff that doesn't boil down to sort of um fruitless online posting as itself a form of politics um, we want to point towards politics that can be more active, um, that can have more of an effect in the real world, that are more appealing to ordinary people, um, that don't seek to divide, but rather seek to um, um, unite people in solidarity, um, and that are less sort of hostile to 
normal fucking human um, experience um, and that don't force you to sort of like see your friends as disposable or like abandon your loved ones at the drop of a hat or um, constantly sort of like believe two simultaneously contradictory things at the same time um, and so on. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's actually extremely important that we do not allow the right to have you know, a monopoly. a monopoly on the critiques of this shit. Because the fact is, is that there are many, many, many people who feel deeply alienated by what we're calling the nexus, who feel totally like weirded out and frightened by the idea that like something they posted on Facebook in 2009 could get them fired from their job. You know, there's a lot of people who really don't understand the dynamics that are going on on the so-called left today. And they're looking for answers and they want they want to feel understood in this deep sense of alienation. And the right is very happy to use that to further its own agenda, which is not an agenda that we want to see furthered. And so we really want to create an explicitly leftist space that is explicitly anti-racist, that is explicitly, you know, pro-queer, et cetera, et cetera. Like we want people to be okay. We want all people to be okay. Um, and we don't want people to be treated badly and to experience domination and exploitation. And we think that the way that we go about doing that is also as important as like the ends that we're working towards, which means that we have to treat each other with like dignity and respect and care and consideration as we do this work. Yeah. Like we also want luxury gay communism or whatever, <laughs> but just straight people are also invited and it's not ruled by like, snitches and hall monitors yeah um yeah so moving on to our second uh goal clementine you want to take us away yeah so the second um the second piece of of what we hope to do with the podcast after we've provided um an analysis and a critique and a breakdown of what we mean by the nexus is we want to offer emotional and spiritual and ethical insights into the process of rejecting and exiting the nexus. So there's like a really um, well-known and important essay called Exiting the Vampire's Castle by Mark Fisher that I think we're really inspired by. And Mark Fisher basically um, describes the Vampire's Castle, which is basically another word for the nexus. He's, he's talking about the same thing. Um, and how like awful and debilitating it was and how he needed to get out of it and how he wanted leftists to have a way out of it. And I mean, we know that Mark Fisher died by suicide, which is awful um, and really depressing. And that, you know, he didn't find a way out and into a world that could hold him and take care of him. Um, and we lost him. And like, that's fucking devastating to me. Um, I want people to have a place to land who are grappling with the intense emotional experience of like feeling totally alienated from the people who are supposed to be your comrades. You know, when we know that capitalism and all of these systems are super fucked up and we want a place to go where that is understood and then we're treated like shit and we're treated like we're disposable. This is like incredibly awful. Um, and people are fucking really alone when they're when they're grappling with that and when the, when they're told that even talking about that makes them bad. Um and I also think a really important thing for us is that like as we've said and as we'll keep saying like both of us 
practice the 12 steps. And like in the 12 steps, we learned that we need to have principles that we practice in all of our affairs, right? A set of principles that guides our actions. And we learned about how to be responsible people and how to look at the places where we've caused harm and how to constantly review our behavior and to like check to see if we are acting in alignment with our integrity. And these are things that are like really, really important to us and actually really essential to our sobriety and our recovery and our well-being. But when we are in the nexus, like we are actively discouraged from doing that. And we're actually told that we need to put our principles aside and do what we're told in all sorts of ways. And so we want to offer people a way back to principles and a way back to figuring out what they believe and what their values and principles are um, and how to feel okay enough to critique and to challenge when the things that are being said to you are just not in alignment with what you believe and what your principles and your ethics are. Um, And then also another piece of that is that As I said, like I am a trauma educator, I have complex PTSD, a large part of what I do is helping people to heal from like really fucked up shit that's happened to them. And, you know, how to, things like how to tell the difference between shame and remorse. How do you know when you've done something wrong? And how do you know when you feel shame because of trauma and because you are prone to shame and people are shaming you? Um, How do you know what's yours and what's not yours? And so I have a lot of like, experience um, and knowledge about that that I want to offer because the process of exiting the vampire's castle is a very messy one for a lot of people. It can feel incredibly confusing, incredibly alienating. You can lose a lot. You can lose all your friends even, you know, maybe not all your friends. You'll find out who your real friends are though, for sure. Um, Because people who start to critique this stuff can be brutally canceled for it. Do you have more to say about that? I think you covered most of it. Um, yeah, like we, yeah, we, we, we really think that our background in 12 step stuff and also Clementine's background in trauma education just has like an immense amount to offer people. I think that a lot of people who've been in 12 step programs um, for a while and sort of start to gain some of the, the benefits of them um, will find themselves in, in situations where you know, the, their friends will be sort of complaining about some kind of situation and then and then we'll kind of like drop some like really like 101 level, like big book 12 step knowledge on people. Um, basic things like, oh, well, you can't control other people, you know, and people will be like, what the fuck, you know, like um, and, and consider it to be sort of like mind blowing knowledge. And um, I don't know, I think like without without wanting to pretend that like the 12 steps contain all wisdom um, and and are like infallible or anything like that. Um, we do think that like I don't know they, they they contain like a set of a set of principles and 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 ways of looking at the world that can just be like um, an incredibly grounding, helpful way of looking at the world that really is in opposition to a lot of the principles of the Nexus while sharing with at least the, the Nexus people who are operating in good faith. Um, a vision of the world that is, you know, better than the one we live in, um, mm-hmm. in which people are empowered, right? Um, yeah, so so we're going to be talking a lot in the podcast about um, about ways that 12-step stuff can benefit us. Um, and also, I don't know, yeah, like I think that the, the fact that like 
we keep identifying so many um, similarities between addictive and compulsive behaviors and behaviors that are encouraged by the nexus, I think is meaningful. And we're going to be looking a lot more into that as well. Yeah. And it's also relevant in terms of like, I mean, it's relevant in a lot of ways, but like in, um, you know, when you critique cancel culture, people freak out because they just don't understand how else we can have justice or like how else we can deal with harmful behavior, you right, know? Right. And alcoholics know all about that, you right. know? Um, and I actually think that in my life, I have seen so much more like real concrete examples of real change and people going from behaving in ways that are super harmful to being like totally responsible people who act with integrity and who have repaired the harm that they've caused. Like I have seen that so many times I have experienced it and I have helped people do that work. And I know that it is a possible thing. And yet cancel culture, which claims to be doing that work literally just blows up people's lives, but they act as if it's the only option. And there's no other possibility for um, creating a more just world where people are not harming each other. And like, I'm like, that's just not true. Like, yeah. And it's like, I'm sure that like somewhere sometime um, a, a so-called transformative justice, um, I don't know, approach has, has worked or like an accountability process or whatever has worked um, and, and has been helpful to the people involved. But I've never seen that happen. Um, and what I have seen happen, like Clementine just said, is like, um, yeah, in, in 12-step programs, like I've seen people completely, completely change from, yeah. Uh, yeah, just from being people who can't, who can't help themselves from being very, very damaging to others in a lot of ways um, to being people who, yeah, like Clementine said, are just like responsible and, and in their integrity, you know? Um, yeah. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. It's because the 12 steps actually are operating on a very different foundation and a very different core set of beliefs than cancel culture. Um, and even many attempts at transformative justice are operating from, and like, we're going to get into that. Um, and we're going to offer this, these skills and these knowledges as alternative ways to deal with things when, when shit is fucked up and like how to, how to deal with like pain and hurt and harm when you've caused it, when other people have caused it. Also just conflict and stuff like that without resorting to punishment and disposability. Yeah. And one last thing before we move on to the next uh, goal for the podcast is that we also uh, want to make it clear that we're not trying to promote the 12 steps um, or we're not trying to promote 12 step programs and we're not telling anyone that they should join one or um, what to do with their lives at all. Um, we're just trying to share um stuff that we've gained. Totally. And we probably should have said already that we don't speak on behalf of 12-step programs. Absolutely not. We are just people who have access to this knowledge and want to freely share it with people who want it. Um, and like part of the issue too is that like we think that this, this knowledge is so useful that it should be available to people who actually don't want or need to be in a 12-step program, but who just maybe would be helped by this knowledge. You know, so we want to share it because it's been incredibly helpful for us. Yeah. So, okay. Um, and then the third, um, the third goal of the podcast is moving towards a different vision for the left that is grounded in solidarity, freedom, and responsibility. So it's really important to us that we're not just critiquing. I mean, one of the biggest problems of the Nexus is that it like obsessively critiques without offering much actual positive alternative 
We want to offer positive alternatives. We want to be solution focused. We want to talk about socialism. We want to encourage people to feel empowered and to be ethical actors who actually feel like they ha can have an influence on what is happening in the world. Um, we are also in a process of learning ourselves um, and figuring out how we can be more effective in moving towards the world that we're trying to build. And we want to share that process with our listeners. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, as both of us have sort of tried to become, let's say, like less online in our in our activism and our politics, um, we have been looking into stuff that's going on uh, sort of off social media um, and looking at different sort of parties that exist, different groups, um, different uh, yeah organizations that are trying to move us towards socialism now um, in, in, in more concrete ways. And yeah, so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be looking at, um, I don't know, just an example or a little teaser is that we want to in, a, in an episode soon, we want to talk about the recent uh, leadership race in the Federal Green Party of Canada um, and uh, what happened there because um, some some socialists tried to basically take over the Green Party and almost succeeded. And so we want to look at look at that, look at any lessons that can be learned and, um, you know, give our listeners a bit of a, a bit of an update on what's going on in um, sort of, let's say, like offline Canadian politics um because i think that in the nexus there's like a strong tendency first of all to be a very american focused mm -hmm. um and we we don't live in the united states we're in montreal um in canada in quebec um specifically and uh and also that yeah like the nexus encourages us to sort of be like um uh, shaking our fists Mm -hmm. at, at, at like the powers that be more than anything else, you know, and um, and it's almost suspicious of of more material types of uh, types of actions and change and and, and and organizing. So, yeah, we want to uh, really try to like and it's also for our own benefit. We want to we want to learn about this shit, you know, because I honestly like am embarrassingly underinformed about certain elements of what's going on in Canada and what's going on in like the the electoral sphere. Because for so many years, I was just like, well, whatever, uh, none of the parties represent me. So why would I even like bother, you know? And, you know, to an extent, that's true. Like, it's still true that none of the parties represent me. Um, but if there is a possibility of having, let's say, like a, like a socialist Green Party in Canada, I think that's an important thing for us to be thinking about. Because that's something I could actually get behind. Um, unlike every other politician I've ever <laughs> laid eyes on, you know? Yeah, and we want to reject nihilism completely. Like, we don't want to be stuck in despair. And I think, actually, the Nexus represents, like, a sort of defeatist, um, nihilist attitude in which we're just, like, um, we've moved just to the realm of symbolism, you know, because we don't actually believe that, like, material change is possible. And so, like, we're really interested in material change and, like, ways of moving towards that. And I think another part of, of this goal is that we want to introduce listeners to other thinkers who have been writing on the left, thinking on the left in ways that are not grounded in identitarianism and cancel culture and social media, the nexus. Um, and there's actually lots of thinkers who have been offering a different version of the left and who are encouraging us um, 
to be having a different analysis and to be coming up with different strategies. Um, and unfortunately, if you are deep inside the nexus, you're not going to hear about any of these things. Like they, there's a huge degree of censorship, um, that is going on. Um, just like a small example is the cancellation of Adolf Reed's, um, talk, um, at a DSA event in the States, like, you know, this is an anti-identitarian thinker who is really smart. He is a scholar. He has books out. He has many papers. He is an anti-racist and he really has a different perspective, a non-identitarian perspective on um, many, many topics, including race. And he was literally not allowed to speak. His, his, his talk was canceled. Um, like literally canceled. And so there's many examples of this where either like people are literally silenced like that, where their, um, their articles are pulled or they're not able to get published or, um, they just have cancellation campaigns where anyone who supports them is harassed or you just like never hear about it because it never kind of breaks through the bubble of the nexus. And so we actually really want our communities to have access to these ideas and to know that in fact, like there's many, many different um, thinkers on the left who are saying many, many different things. There isn't actually ideological agreement. Um, and we want to consider these ideas and engage with them uh, and take them seriously rather than just silencing them and saying that they are problematic and bad. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> so do you feel like that basically covers the goals? I feel like that covers the goals very well. Okay. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about um, is principles. And so you'll hear us talking about principles a lot. <laughs> and basically principles are like guiding beliefs um, that you can use to sort of check in with yourself and to be like, you know, am I acting in alignment with what I believe? Because sometimes things are really confusing and it can be hard to orient ourselves or to ground ourselves. Um, and people have different principles and it's important to know like what your principles are. Um, and we have principles and these are principles that we have gained, you know, from experience and over the years. And a lot of them are informed by um our experience in 12-step programs. And basically, we wanted to share with the listeners on the first episode the principles that are guiding um, this podcast. And the reason for that is because the Nexus actually has its own set of principles. And a lot of these principles are actually like very authoritarian, um, very dogmatic, very coercive. And we reject a lot of that. And so we want people to like understand how we're orienting orienting ourselves so that you might be a little bit more open-minded to hearing what we have to say because we're definitely going to be breaking many of the rules of the nexus um and so we want to kind of give people a way of understanding like what the framework is that we are following because it's not just random we actually have principles that are guiding what we're doing right and in 12-step programs there is a um there is a uh, a saying that is principles over personalities. And I think that this is so fucking important. I can't emphasize this enough. Okay. Like. What does it mean? Clementine? So principles over personalities. Principles over personalities means that we can work with people who are different from ourselves. And it means 
that like our shared goals and values and what we're working towards are more important than our differences or, you know, like basically when I'm operating from a place of principles over personalities, then I am operating as your comrade rather than as Clementine Morgan, you know? I'm not here to be promoting myself. I'm here to be in relationship and solidarity and to work towards common goals, including with people who I might disagree with on many issues. And I think that this is why like 12-step programs have managed to be so um, long-lasting is that they are really able to work together. People are able to work together in those contexts with people who are profoundly different from themselves in order to meet common goals. It's also part of a, a strong um, tendency towards like making sure that charismatic individuals don't control what's going on and that instead a set of principles is referred to when you're trying to figure out what should be going on. Exactly. And that that way of doing things resists illegitimate authority. It does so because it's not that you should listen to me because of who I am. And I, you know, like I said, like I'm Clementine Morgan, so I'm going to tell you what to do. You know, it's not about that. It's about principles. And you don't have to agree with our principles. Like you actually have the right to have your own principles and maybe your principles are different from our principles, but we want to share with you what our principles are so that you can have an understanding of what's guiding us and our thoughts as we do this work. Yep. So we like basically wrote down a bunch of stuff and then I made Clementine uh, tidy it up into a nice list. Um, so let's hear what Clementine has. So maybe, maybe I'll read some and then, and, or should we talk about each one? I think we could like, yeah, like let's read them one by one and, and talk about each one for a little bit. Okay. So the first one is honesty. Um, telling the truth about our beliefs, values, and questions, even when it's unpopular to do so. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is an incredibly important value. Um, I think that one of the crazy making things about the Nexus that, like, lots of people within it notice over and over again is that it discourages honesty. Yeah. It really discourages honesty. Like, if you think something that goes against whatever the current kind of orthodoxy is, you can't say it. Yeah, you're not allowed. You're really not allowed. And people have to constantly be scanning their social media feeds to figure out, you know, the one I heard about recently is that apparently they made sexual preference a slur. Yeah, which um, it wasn't a slur. It wasn't a slur like last weekend, you know, <laughs> um, but now it's a slur. Now you have to say sexual orientation. And it's like, so you have to be like scanning your social media feeds to be like, oh, okay, this is now like not an acceptable thing anymore, you know? Um, and you have to be, you have to be looking at like, oh, this person like didn't write like AFAB, they wrote, F-A-A-B. Is this like the new terminology that I have to learn? And then you're sort of like, okay, well, I'll check to see how often they occur in proportion yeah. or whatever. Um, and yeah, so I mean, this is just one example of how the Nexus sort of like really has this um, this stifling effect on, on honesty and like sort of like frank speech or whatever. Um, I went on a tiny bit of attention there, but you want to tell us more about honesty for you? Yeah, and like... I think it also plays out in the concept of accountability. So like with, I use the term responsibility as opposed to accountability. And I actually think that there is, I think that the word accountability has been unfortunately so butchered that it's kind of lost any meaning. And that's so I choose to prefer, I choose to use the word um, responsibility instead. But basically, you know, in, under the, the framework of cancel culture um, and the current understanding of accountability, if you've been accused of something, you have to say that you did the thing that you've been accused of. 
even if that's not true. Like there's actually an encouragement of dishonesty where you are being told that you have to be accountable and therefore you have to agree with what is being said about you. Um, and that's basically, it's suggested that's the only way out of the mess that you're in. Well, first of all, it's not the way out of the mess that you're in because we all know and have seen that these um, statements of accountability and when people agree with the accusations made against them publicly, that usually doesn't go well for them. And it's actually um, often quite a disaster. But I mean, what do you do in a case in which what's being said about you does not reflect what has happened and you don't actually feel that you have done anything wrong or that you have acted out of alignment with your integrity? It's literally asking you to be dishonest. Um, and so... Yeah, and, and it just ends up with these, um, these social situations in which everyone involved is basically in a state of denial. Um, and in a state of dishonesty and is constantly sort of trying to um, reconcile this tension that can't be reconciled, you know, which makes everyone fucking crazy um, and is horrible for, for your mental health and also your sense of um, your sense of self, you mm -hmm. know, like how can you, how can you truly respect yourself when you're constantly keeping track of all these weird dishonest, um, these dishonesties? Yeah. And so um, there's like a belief that you need to just that to be honest would be to believe what you're being told to believe. <laughs> and that's not what honesty is. Honesty right. is saying what you actually believe. And sometimes what you believe, you know, is not going to be popular. And sometimes what you believe is actually going to result in punishment. And and this doesn't mean that we should never revise our views or that we should never change what we believe. Like, I think we should change what we believe if we have been presented with information and thought about it and talked to lots of people and really reflected on it. And then we're like, okay, actually this does, this does seem like I need to change um, what I think. That's totally fine. But it's just that basically at the way that it is now, you can say what you believe and people can tell you that's a wrong thought. And then you have to say, you don't believe it anymore. You believe something else. And that's, <laughs> that's wrong. Um, yeah. So in this podcast, we are going to tell you what we really think about stuff. <laughs> yeah. We're going to tell you what we really think about stuff. And we're going to ask questions like, you know, that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say when you don't know what you think. Which leads us to our next uh, one, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So the second um, principle is curiosity. So keeping an open mind, asking questions and resisting making assumptions. Yeah. And I think like I, I was especially insistent on putting something like this in because I think it reflects my... I mean, not the, not like I'm like the only one who thinks this, but like my my training as an anthropologist is constantly sort of like it's like I need to be asking questions about fucking everything all the time, you know, um, and and subjecting everything to analysis, um, and you know, hopefully not in too much of an obnoxious way, but um, trying not to become complacent in my understanding of things. Um, I also think that yeah, like just as a value in and of itself, curiosity allows us to understand more about the world. Um, and that is honestly one of my main goals in life, um, not just politically, but like, you know, I like to sometimes I spend hours like looking at like Wikipedia pages on like the evolutionary biology of like a very like some kind of like genus of fucking like plant or something just because I'm really interested in it. And I want to know. Um, mm -hmm. And and yeah, so I'm a curious person and I am curious about um, people and I'm curious about what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And the nexus, like so often asks us to move immediately to condemnation, you know, and, and to 
if if someone is is saying something that you know registers as problematic or as something that's not supposed to be said, then we kind of shut down our ability to listen to them at all or to hear hear what they're saying and see if we agree with some of it, disagree with some of it, you know. And curiosity is a principle about really being open to the idea that we don't know everything, being open to the idea that the framework that we're currently working with may be incomplete, that there may be information that is outside of of what we know and being, you know, really open and encouraging to the experience of finding out the things that we don't know. And I think this is a really important um, skill for working with people who are different from ourselves um, because the nexus and like social justice culture can be like this in club in which we all sort of practice, you know, a certain etiquette and a certain language um, and we don't, um, you know, we don't let other people in who don't understand that that etiquette and that language. And so we immediately shut them out because they don't, they're not like us. And curiosity is actually about wanting to know what other people think and how they understand the world and seeing how that might be beneficial to us instead of always positioning ourselves as the ones who know. Um, so that actually is a good segue into the third one. Which is solidarity, finding common ground with people we don't entirely agree with. Um, building solidarity across difference and expanding the us as big as we can. Yeah. So, I mean, um, David Graeber just recently passed away and he's um, a thinker who we really deeply respect and admire. And he was one of the people behind the um, Occupy Wall Street movement and the phrase, um, we are the 99%. And these days in the Nexus, there's this like huge splitting into tinier and tinier um identitarian groups and we're always encouraged to think about each group as separate and as having totally distinct needs and as being in competition for each other like there's often this um this sort of commanding statement that you can't talk about that issue because right now it's this moment and this moment is about this other issue um and I'm like we don't need to be dividing everything into separate moments (laughs) like we are actually in this together and this whole like us and them thing, like to me, the us and them is like, you know, the billionaires who are destroying the planet versus the rest of us. And like, I want us to be in solidarity with people, with all all of us. And that means fundamentally working with people who are profoundly different from us. Yeah. And I think for me, it also is about like solidarity provides an alternative to this notion of allyship, Mm -hmm. which I don't, identify with um and yeah because i'm not i'm not like your ally i'm your comrade um i'm not in a separate um world than you i'm not i'm not like a sovereign state that's like fighting a war alongside you or something like we're people (laughs) we're fucking people um and i'm in solidarity with you and my solidarity with you is a value in and of itself it's not because i like i don't know pity you or um because i owe you or anything like that. It's because I have freely chosen as an autonomous individual um, and as a member of a collective, a collectivity of people to be in solidarity with you because I think that it's important and it's how we, how it's, it's the best, um, it's the best side of, of what humans do. Mm-hmm. You know, humans do a lot of things. Some of them are very awful. Um but some of them are very beautiful and solidarity is one of those um, human qualities that 
we can see, you know, all across history and all across all cultures and that we can identify as being like part of the very best of the human, the human condition, you know? Um, and I want you to be in solidarity with me and I want to be in solidarity with you. And I want to be able to see your struggles and your pain as, um, as causes for me to care about, you know, and I want us to do that together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think solidarity also, like, it just, it really, it really like breaks down the idea that there's like, you know, there's, there's your issues and there's my issues. Like it makes it clear that in fact, like treating all human beings with like dignity and care and like creating a world that is like, you know, meeting our needs and, and where we can all be okay is like something that, that is good for all of us. And that there isn't, there doesn't have to be this separation between our struggles. We're in fact struggling for the same thing. We should be struggling for the same thing. Um, and also solidarity has to do with like the building of mass power, which is extremely important. And like, if we constantly have these tiny little break off, split off groups, with separate issues, we're never going to have enough power to make the kinds of changes that we need to make and like that we urgently need to make. So we actually have to be willing to find common ground and to find the places where we do agree. Um, and I think a really good um, 12 step slogan for this is um, as long as the ties that bind us together are stronger than those that would tear us apart, all will be well. And I think mm -hmm. that that's a really strong guiding principle to work with. Yeah, and a yeah, and a goal to work towards too. Yeah, um, and the next uh, the next value is um, or principle is humility. So knowing that we don't know everything or have all the answers, seeing all relationships and encounters as opportunities for learning and rejecting righteousness. Yeah, so humility is like a hugely important uh, principle in twelve step um, culture, and it's extremely missing from the nexus um mm. the nexus um in the nexus people take on this this sort of righteous condemning attitude of like pointing fingers and like um letting people know and even the whole attitude that like you know calling out and even calling in like all of that positions you in the position as the righteous one as the one who knows what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong humility asks us to consider that there might that things might be more complex than that, and that we may not be the one um, in the position to tell someone else that they're wrong. We might actually need to ask questions, find out what their perspective is, what is going on in this situation, what are what is all of the different um, facets and aspects of a situation. Um, and yeah, things are usually a lot more complicated than just a simple, you know, good, bad, right, wrong kind of um, perspective. And humility is the willingness to like be with that complexity. It's the willingness to know that we don't know everything and that we always have so much more to learn. Um, and it's also like, you know, it's just like knowing that like it's not just like, you know, university educated queers who are going to bring about the revolution by telling everybody about the right way to like, you know, speak or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out like the the fundamental difference between humility and humiliation. And I think that humiliation is common on the nexus mm -hmm. um, as a method of controlling people um, and also as like an encouraged feeling, honestly, like when people sort of like post these groveling exposés of their own thought crimes um, and sort of tearfully admit their, 
their internal uh, white supremacy or or transphobia or whatever it is, they're they're sort of sadomasochistically like enjoying this um, this humiliation, mm-hmm. um, and and it's part of cancel culture to humiliate others. Yeah. Um, whereas humility really rejects all of that altogether. It's like um, I think the best way, the way I like to think about it, I mean, this has some 12 step shit in it too, is that like humility is saying like, I'm not a saint. Um, that means that I'm not, I'm not the arbiter of everything good. I'm not sort of like special in my goodness. Um, but also I should not be expected to be. Um, and I'm just an ordinary person. Mm-hmm. And, and that means that I have failings and my failings are not a spectacle. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that's very important. They're just ordinary, you know? Um, and it's not, it's not your place to humiliate me and it's not my place to be humiliated. Um, instead, like I cultivate, yeah, just a sense of right sizedness. Yeah. The right sizedness, um, is, is really important. And it's, it's interesting because I don't think humility is a concept that is talked about much. Um, but in 12 step culture, we talk about it a lot. Um, and so I kind of forget that it's not even a word that people are necessarily that familiar with in everyday life. Um, but like basically humility, I mean, I think people can understand that humility has to do with not being grandiose and not, um, thinking, you know, so highly of yourself or being arrogant or something like that. But it also means not, not putting yourself below either and not thinking less of yourself, not thinking that you're somehow, you know, so irredeemable or shameful or so bad, Um, it's about being, you're not special, just being in the middle. (laughs) You're just a person like everybody else, you know, and we all have things to learn from each other. We all have journeys that we're on. Yeah. So basically we don't think we're better than you. (laughs) And we don't think that you're better than us. What's the next one? Um, so integrity, developing a set of principles and acting in alignment with them, knowing where we end and other people begin and trusting ourselves. So yeah, integrity is such a hugely important one. Um, and like basically what we're doing right now is a practice of integrity because we're actually talking about and thinking about what our principles are. And having principles is a way of staying in your integrity because you know, if you know what your principles are, you can you can check to see if you're acting in alignment with them or not. Um, and you're not just sort of being like blown around by the wind or by like the changing forces of opinion Um, or by what you're told, you're actually able to check against an internal set of principles that you believe in and to see if you're acting in alignment with them. Um, I also think like the word integrity for me, like it has to do with wholeness and with integration and being your entire self. And so therefore it also has to do with boundaries and knowing what's yours and what is someone else's. Um, And so like integrity it means knowing like what we're responsible for and what we're not responsible for acting in alignment with our principles, but not trying to control other people's reactions or emotions in relationship to us acting in alignment with our principles. Um, And it means trusting ourselves to, to be ethical actors, you know, like, of course I could act in ways that are out of alignment with my integrity. Um, But because I have a sense of what my integrity is, I can assess that when that happens and then I can move towards actions of repair. Um, 
But it also means that when people tell me that I've done something wrong, I actually can check. I can actually look to see if the behavior um, that they're pointing out that is wrong, in their opinion, if that actually is wrong based on my own ethics and my own principles. And I can talk to other people that I trust about this and and walk it, walk through it in case there's something that I'm missing and be like, these are my principles. These are my values. This is what I believe. Here's what I did. Here's what people are saying about me. Have I done something wrong? Um, and it's like shocking within the nexus because like to do this is shocking within the nexus because there is no... Um, there is no method with which to do this inside the nexus. Within Inside the nexus, when you've been told that you've done something wrong, you have done something wrong. You're also not supposed to have your own moral authority yeah. to figure out if you've done something wrong To or trust not. yourself. You're literally only allowed... Because moral authority comes through identity. Yes, exactly. Other people's identity. Yes. Typically. And, and so, yeah, we will we'll talk lots about that in, um, in upcoming episodes. But yeah, basically, uh, the nexus, the combination of identitarianism um, and cancel culture, usually mediated through social media, means that when somebody mobilizes a claim through identity that you have done something wrong, you just have to accept it. Um, And this is completely (laughs) incorrect um, and also very insulting because not everyone of that given identity would agree with the assessment that that person is making. And so it is not an essential quality of that identity that that statement is true. Right. It's an essentializing uh, argument. Yeah. Which we'll talk more about. Yeah, for sure. So do you have anything else to say about integrity? Um, Well, just that, yeah, like we're, well, because I'm trying to give like a a positive spin on each one um, or whatever, like as we go or whatever, you know, but basically, yeah, like in this podcast, I mean, like we we are doing this as a practice of integrity where um, we are sort of refusing to be not sort of, we are refusing to be, to be bullied into submission and silence um, by, by people who, who want to do that. Um, and we are choosing instead to have our own set of principles that we've thought carefully about and to guide our actions with those principles rather than, um, on the, the whims of others. Yeah. And I mean, truly like a kind of really simple way of putting it is like integrity is doing the right thing, even when you're scared, you know, and even when it's hard and even when it would be easier not to. Um, and so, and we encourage you to do that too. Yeah, we do. Okay. So the the next one, um, is responsibility. So this goes, very well with everything we were just saying. And I would say that integrity is sort of like the foundation of responsibility. But responsibility is being ethical actors in the world who feel a part of the communities we move through, doing what's in our power toward positive change and committing to our own growth and healing. Yeah, absolutely. And and you like to, to um, juxtapose that with the word accountability. Yes, I use it instead. Yeah, and I would love for you to explain to our <laughs> listeners why you do that. I mean, I think that the the term accountability, it's one of these words that has become totally almost like hollow and meaningless and in the nexus. Um, we all sort of assume that we know what it means, but it basically just means that the accuser gets to tell the accused what to do, and the accuser has to do exactly that. Accused. The accused has to do exactly that, yeah. So... Um, 
like, you know, if um, you've you've heard the phrase refusing to be accountable many, many times um, and often the like what even it means to be accountable is always incredibly unclear in these accusations. Um, but usually it means something along the lines of the accused needs to describe what happened using the exact words that the accuser says that they need to. Um, they need to, in public in public on the internet. Um, and they need to give everything up. They need to no longer have the career that they have. They no longer can be in the band that they were in. Um, they, they need to basically be a doormat. Um, and this is just seen as accountability. Um, and to me, that's like very absurd. Nobody should be a doormat. Nobody should be a doormat. And being responsible when we have caused harm is, um, not about being a doormat. And so like, I think of responsibility, you know, in a general sense, responsibility is, it's just about being like a responsible person in the world, knowing that that your actions affect other people, that your actions affect the world, feeling um, feeling like the, that the consequences of your actions are important and that you want to affect the world in positive ways, you know? Um, so that's like the general sense of responsibility. But in a specific way, there is responsibility when we have acted out of alignment with our integrity and when we have caused harm. And there are situations in which you're going to be like, wow, yeah, like I... I hurt someone, I, I acted in a way that was like really harmful or um, I did something that I really regret. And in the nexus, as much as, you know, we like to pretend inside the nexus that we are abolitionists and that we, we care about transformative justice, the reality is, is that it's an incredibly punitive space in which people who have caused harm are treated as incredibly disposable um, and are shamed and have everything that they care about taken away from them. We pretend like this isn't the case, but it happens over and over and over again. And I think that most people know someone that this has happened to, or most people inside the nexus anyway, um, or they live in fear of it happening to them, you know, if they step out of line. And responsibility has nothing to do with punishment. And the 12 steps are what taught me about how to be responsible, how to take responsibility when I've caused harm. And it's basically just about really understanding where that behavior came from understanding what led to that, you know, um, what were the factors that led to me acting in a way that was out of alignment with my integrity. Um, I can only do that work with the support of a loving community that has my back. Responsi responsibility isn't something that we do alone. Um, and then once I have an understanding of that, changing my behavior in an ongoing way so that I'm no longer acting out of alignment with my integrity, and then making direct amends, which means expressing that regret to the person that I've harmed and taking actions of repair, like where necessary and where appropriate. And like, it's totally possible and makes sense to take responsibility um, when we've caused harm, but like taking responsibility comes from a place of self-respect and dignity and boundaries. Um, it does not mean handing over our autonomy to other people. And it does not mean dishonestly taking responsibility for things that are not our responsibility. Yep. Fuck yeah. And then in our case, uh, responsibility in the context of this podcast, um, I mean, I guess it's just that we want to, we want to as much as possible, yeah, just contribute to like um, our communities in a positive way and, and move forward like that. So the next one is, um, what was it, generosity? So yeah, approaching conversations in good faith, 
and working to see where the other person is coming from. Um, yeah, so I think that, well, yeah, so during the course of this podcast, we intend to, for example, interview people. And we're not always going to interview people that we 100% agree with because there's, there's not very many people that we 100% agree with, you know, which is normal because people have different opinions about that. Yeah, we might not even 100% agree with each other. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we're still going to interview people and we're going to we're going to also like read things that might have points that we don't agree with completely and so so on. Um, and we want to be able to um, extend the benefit of a doubt. We want to accept that people might have opinions that are that differ from our own. Um, and we want to like treat other people and, and their opinions with kindness and yeah. And respect. And I think also like generosity and good faith means, you know, to the best of our ability, trying to assume good intentions, like trying to assume that, that people that we're engaging in conversation with are, are trying to come from a genuine place of expressing something that's important to them and making an effort to understand that, making an effort to see where we agree, looking for the similarities and not just focusing on the different, focusing on the differences, seeing what we can learn from them. Um, not assuming the worst basically. Um, and I think in the nexus, there's like this huge, you know, condemning, like uh, uh, assuming the worst, somebody, somebody says, uh, a phrase that we recently decided is problematic and now everything about them is fucked up, you know, instead of actually listening to what they're saying and trying to like get to the heart of it. Yeah. Which I think leads us to the next one very easily, which is uh, tolerance. So just allowing for difference, um, working with people who are different than ourselves and welcoming a diversity of thought and perspective. Yeah. It's super important. And like, um, yeah, like, we were just listening to an interview with Stuart Parker, um, who is an intellectual and um, the former leader of the BC Eco-Socialists. Um, and yeah, he was just talking about like the complete absence of like a public square on the left and how like we don't have a place for discourse anymore, a way for people to who are leftists, who who have the same you know, ultimate goals, but who might have different ideas about how do we get there or different strategies, different perspectives, different ideologies, like within leftism. There's so many different ways of thinking about these things and conversation and difference is generative and important and we need it. But unfortunately, it's deeply stifled um, and it's treated with suspicion and it's shut down. And so, yeah, like as as Jay was saying um in the generosity principle, like, I think it's also applies to the tolerance one. Tolerance is now seen as like a, a kind of like an outdated idea. And, and I don't think it's taken very seriously anymore, but I actually think it's really important. It means that you don't have to like everything that somebody says, you know, you don't have to be a hundred percent on board in order for that person to be a comrade. And in order for that person to not be like a horrible, bad person, you know, there can even be, um, thinkers who like, I do take serious issue with some of the things that they think, and I disagree with them. Um, but I still think that they have the right to think those things and say those things. And I would like to be in dialogue with them. And maybe, maybe through dialogue, I might persuade them to agree with me. Maybe I will also learn something um, from what they're saying, even though right now I don't agree with it. But just like really having an approach of, of tolerance and an, a willingness to engage with people who are different from ourselves. Yeah. So the next one is loyalty. This is another one that I think gets a really bad rep um, these days. But 
loyalty, deep love and commitment for our relationships and communities, refusing to treat people like they're disposable. Yeah, we don't throw our fucking friends away. Um, we take care of people. We have patience with people. Um, we allow people to be people, basically, I think is what that means. We don't expect them to be brands. Yeah. Um, and we don't expect them to be saints. Um, and they're allowed to be fucking weird and messy. And uh, and it's not that they're allowed in this sense of kind of like, um, you know, make sure you call in before you call out. Yeah. But they're allowed in the sense of like, that's their fucking life, man. Yeah. Um, and like, and also, yeah, like if you come for my friends, like I'm going to protect them. Yeah. Because they're my friends and they're my community and they're like my, my people, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've noted that in the Nexus, loyalty to one's friends is, is actively not allowed. Um, you are very discouraged from treating your friends with loyalty because if one of them, you know, is canceled, there are whole sets of mechanisms that don't worry, I will get into you on a later episode that um, make it so that if you defend your friend, you're fucked. Yeah. You're yourself are totally canceled. And, you know, for us, you know, coming from a 12-step perspective, like, we operate in the fundamentally opposite way of thinking. Where, you know, if somebody is acting in all sorts of fucked up ways, that person needs a friend. You know, they need community to have their back and to help them to be safe enough to actually do the work that they need to do to change. And in many cases... People are not acting in a fucked up way at all. They're actually just committing a thought crime. They're just, you know, they made some kind of nexus mistake. And <laughs> now they're being punished and everybody needs to punish them. And we don't do that. We don't believe in punishment. And we actually think that community, friendship, relationships, these things are incredibly important. People need to feel safe and secure in their relationships. They need to know that they're not disposable and that, you know, nobody's going to dig up something that they said on fucking Facebook when they were nine and and decide that they're not allowed to have friends anymore. That's like a real thing that has happened, you know? Yeah. You have to be able to trust your fucking people. You have to have friends that you can trust. It's incredibly, incredibly important. And you need to know that like your friends have your back no matter what, like not just when you're having a good time, but also when everybody's turning on you. Um, so loyalty, very important. Um, the next one is empowerment. Building on the places that we do have power and agency, rather than focusing on the places that we don't, seeing power as something that should be expanded and shared, not relinquished from one group to another. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, in the Nexus, it's basically the entire rhetorical scheme of the Nexus is to um, count all the ways in which you're disempowered. Um, and then you use that to gain a kind of like weird, like bizarre world power within the nexus um and then that can sometimes be translated into real world power within the sort of like professional managerial class um if you can sort of like mobilize identity points to get like a white collar job mm -hmm. somewhere yeah um but what that ends up meaning is that people are basically looking for all of the ways in which they're disempowered right um and actively downplaying the ways in which they are empowered. And we would like for everyone to be empowered. Um, we would like to figure out ways in which we can get more power as leftists. Mm -hmm. 
we want to figure out ways in which we can build actually existing socialism in the real world. Um, and we want to dismantle um, narratives that that really teach us that we don't have power and that we can't do that. Yeah. And there's like a narrative, you know, in, um, in the Nexus that's basically like, if you are a member of a privileged group, then that means that justice means that you will give up that power and you will give up this power to the group that is marginalized. Um, but I'm like, none of us have enough power to be giving up the power that we have. In fact, we're incredibly disempowered. We are literally living at the end of the world with an oncoming apocalypse and none of us have any power to do anything about that, you know? Um, the sort of uh, relative power of, of someone who's pretty doing pretty okay versus someone who is abjectly suffering is a tiny margin compared to the people who have mass, mass power. Like individuals who control hundreds of billions of dollars worth of capital. Yeah, so like that's where we should be redistributing power is from the top to the rest of us who are actually even though there's great differences between us those differences are like incredibly small compared to the huge differences between the people at the top and everybody else um so and we actually think that this is a more like um it's a more appealing way to talk about this and to get people on board. Because when you tell like a working class man who fucking has a really hard time and doesn't have a lot going for him, that he needs to um, give up his male privilege, like he's gonna be like, excuse me, like I don't have a lot going on for me right now. You know, like you're asking me to give something up without giving me anything. And we're saying, look, like we want to give you something. We want you to have all of your needs met. We're not asking you to have less. We want you to have more. Um, and we want that for everyone, you know? And I think that framing it that way and being like, look, we want you to have everything that you need. We want you to have more than you have. And we want you to treat the people in your lives with dignity and respect and as your equals. Like that's like a far more appealing way to get people on board, you know? Um, so more, not less. And then another piece of this is like, you know, part of trauma is like a concept called learned helplessness, where, you know, when we have been victimized and hurt over and over again, we can really get used to the idea of being victimized and hurt. And we can, um, especially with developmental trauma, when like as children, we had no power. Um, and so we can get used to the feeling of having no power. And then when we become adults and we actually have a lot more power and agency, we can still believe and act as if we have none. Um, and this is a common... Um, issue that people with developmental trauma have where we may be totally unaware of the options that are available to us in our adult lives that we didn't have as children. Um, and I think that unfortunately this can kind of be magnified by the nexus and played out where like we're so encouraged to identify with the places where we're victimized and the places where we don't have power that we kind of refuse to or like are unable to see the places where we do have power and where we could actually increase our power and increase our agency and our capacity to create meaningful change in our own lives and also in our communities. So more power, not less power. Yeah. Um, so the next one is freedom. Valuing autonomy and rejecting coercion, encouraging freedom of speech, thought and action encouraging and trusting people to use their freedom well and intervening in practices of domination. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's weird, but like in the modern identitarian left, freedom is almost like a bad word. 
um, especially when it comes to, you know, freedom of speech, which people like actively make fun of. Um, and yeah, um, we come from an anarchist philosophical background. We think the freedom is one of those things like solidarity that is like one of the most important elements of the human condition and something that should be fostered and protected. Um, and that has to do with all different kinds of freedom and not only like liberal conceptions of freedom, um, but freedom generally. And yeah, we want to be free to say the kinds of things that we want to say um, without interference from uh, corporate feudal lords or the state, um, but also from like mobs of liberals online. Um, and we want you to have that same freedom. Um, and we want us all to defend <laughs> that freedom. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's so like horrifying about the nexus is, is the degree to which it wants to stifle freedom of speech and thought. Um, yeah. Yeah. And these days, like, you know, in the nexus, like basically there definitely is like a concept of thought crime, like saying things that are, are not allowed is, is, is literally framed as violence. It's framed as literal violence. Um, when it's literally just people speaking an opinion. Um, and I don't agree with the, with everything that everybody says. Um, but I do actually hold a really strong value around freedom of speech I would rather have people say things that I disagree with and 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 have a conversation with them about that than than force them into silence. And I think it's a really dangerous trajectory that we're on because when we are um so commonly accepting censorship as a strategy, like I mean, it's a slippery slope and before long we're not allowed to say anything. I mean, especially when we're begging tech companies to take on the role of censors. Um, and to determine what kind of political speech is acceptable or not. Because tech companies have their own sets of principles, which largely consist of making a lot of money um, and maintaining the status quo. And so, you know, if they do, you know, they'll censor like a Nazi or something because they don't fucking care. Um, that's easy for them to do and it looks good for their brand image. But they'll also censor fucking leftists. They have and they will, right? Um, and so we have to be like extremely careful about that um, and not be begging these tech companies to be our, our the arbiters of, of what's allowed. Yeah. And often people will be like, yes, freedom of speech is fine unless it's like oppressive. But again, we have to understand that what is considered oppressive is not um, agreed upon. It's not an objective like measure. Yeah. And even within, you know, marginalized or oppressed groups, there is such a huge variance of opinion about what is considered oppressive, what are the strategies towards liberation. There's totally different um, strategies. And you can literally see, like in the example that I gave with like Adolf Reed earlier, that like members of these very groups are silenced for like thought crimes about the group that they're in. Like they're not allowed to have a different opinion. Um, like, Adolf Reed, who's black and who's a racialized person, is not allowed to have a different opinion about race and racism and the construction of race. He's silenced. Um, and it's ridiculous because he is allowed to have that thought. Um, I don't know. You know, like he is literally a member of the group that is impacted by by racism. And you're saying that he's not allowed to have an opinion about racism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, freedom and also encouraging and trusting people to use their freedom well um, and believing that people can like step up to the responsibility of freedom. And then if people are acting in ways um, that are like exploitative or practicing domination, then that is where we should step in. Yeah. And that leads us to our next one, which is courage, you know, which is the, the, the willingness to take right action, even when it's scary to do so. Um, and acting in our integrity and being responsible. So yeah, like if we do see someone's freedom, someone's rights, someone's integrity being trampled, um, then we can take direct action to to stop that from happening, for sure. Um, and I think that like, I don't know, Clementine's written about this and something we've talked about a lot where, you know, these kind of like, people are like, well, what can we do if someone has like caused harm? how can we make them accountable? And it's like, you can't make them accountable. <laughs> you can't make people be accountable. Like uh, when people want to take responsibility, um, they have to do it of their own free will. Um, but if you see someone like literally, you know, like punching out their girlfriend or something, you can literally put your body in between those two people. And and I would say that you should. Um, and if you see injustice occurring, like, you know, you can interfere with that and you should have the courage to do so. And you should cultivate that courage. Um, and when it comes down to like, you know, making a podcast, like, you know, we are whatever we want to be, we don't want to be intimidated and we want to have the courage to say, you know, say what we believe. Um, and not just for kind of like selfish reasons of wanting to hear our own voices, but because we think that there are, well, actually we know that there are many, many, many people who agree with us, but who don't have the means, um, to, to do this, you know? Um, and yeah, we, we want to help them, um, have, have a place to land when they sort of like inevitably leave the, uh, the nexus. I mean, it's not inevitable, but I hope that they do. Or yeah. Um, that's what I mean. Yeah. And like the courage to, to do the right thing, even when it's scary to do so. I mean, like being honest about these things is really, really hard. It's actually really, really scary. The consequences of critiquing the nexus is really extreme. And like I said, like I've already been through cancellation. Um, and so talking about these things is like extremely vulnerable and like really frightening. Um, but I believe that like having the courage to stand by your principles, even when they're not popular is really, really important. Yeah. Um, the next one, there's only a couple more. The next one is um, acceptance. So knowing which things are outside of our control so that we can focus on changing what we can, uh, living in reality, and not trying to force people to think um, and act the way that we want them to. Yeah, so I mean, honestly, like in 12 Steps, we have the serenity prayer, which is like such a basic sort of um, really helpful little prayer, which is just, um, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, and I think for a lot of people, the idea of accepting the things that we can't change, it's, it's really stressful because they're like, oh, that just means that like, we need to like lie down and accept it. And like, there's things that are not acceptable and we should just not put up with them. And it's like, yes, but that's what the second part of the prayer is about. Like, we, we should have the courage to change the things that we can. But when we waste all of our energy trying to change things that we fundamentally cannot control, we waste all of our energy. We misdirect our energy towards things um, that 
we actually can't change and we could be using that energy towards things that we can change. And I think one of the fundamental things that we can't change is other people. Like, and the nexus, it it pours huge amounts of energy into the policing, the behavior, the thoughts and the actions of regular everyday people. Um, and the behavior, the people's behavior that we should be changing are the billionaires. You know, we should be pouring our energy into building collective power so that we could actually have the means and the capacity to um, force change at that level. But instead, we're scolding people about, you know, what they posted or did not post on social media. Um, and so, you know, people aren't always going to agree with us. People are going to think things that we don't agree with. They're going to do things that we don't like. Um, and we accept that. And we accept that. We have to accept that, you know. Um, and another thing is just like living in reality. Like there's a lot of things that are going on that are like really disturbing and upsetting. And this is what is going on right now. Um, it doesn't mean that we can't work towards change, but we need to be honest about where things really are at um, and like start from that place. Yeah, fuck yeah. And the last thing, we had a bit of trouble coming up with this, but then Clementine stumbled on like a really way, a really great way to uh, to express it. It's complexity. So engaging with the true complexity of history, the world, and human beings, and rejecting essentialism and embracing the work of understanding. So basically, yeah, this is a commitment to understanding that, well, it's a commitment to understanding, really. Um, it's, it's a refusal to boil things down to simplistic ideas. Um, it's a refusal to see things through an essentialist lens. Um, it's understanding that people are not just their identity groups, um, and that identity groups are not static, um, either geographically or through history, um, and that they blend together at the edges and they're very messy. Um, it's sort of like the weird mirror image of intersectionality, I think, because like, yeah, we're basically saying that like, you can, you can subdivide people into neat identity groups all you want, but you will still never be able to look at someone's identity characteristics and then tell me everything about that person. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's so important. And I also think that like my own, like I'm, I'm obsessed with history and I talk about it all the time. Um, and I think that like when we have like a really good thorough understanding of history on a global scale, um, it starts to completely break apart a lot of our ideas about like different identity groups or whatever. Um, and looking at the ways in which, um, historically different, different groups were interacting with each other constantly all throughout world history, you know, um, and they were never static. They were never, and they never will be. Um, and I, I'm sure I'll get, get into that lots more as the podcast goes on. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's lots of good examples, like, but yeah. Yeah. I think that we really in the nexus rely heavily on like um like symbolism and like using things to stand in for other things and we sort of do this like um shorthand thing where we use identity categories to stand in for like really complex phenomena that include many 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 factors um and intersectionality attempts to deal with this by constantly like you said subdividing the um identity groups into smaller and smaller ones but there's there's so much more um, at work than just identity categories. And I think that really um, trying to make sense of things and trying to be in relationship with other people requires a commitment to complexity and to 
um, being with the fullness of what is, um, which is complicated. And complex. It is. So yeah, those are all our, uh, all our principles, I guess. Um, and yeah, so we just wanted to, to really work through those. Um, I think as much for our benefit as for yours, um, and try to commit to commit to these like principles moving forward. Yeah. And to give you all an idea about, um, where we're coming from. Yeah. Where we're coming from. So I guess that's it. For the first episode um, of Fucking Cancelled, thank you for um, being here with us and for thinking through these ideas with us. Um, We recognize that, like, it can be scary to talk about these things. It can bring up lots of feelings. Um, It can feel threatening. It can bring up, like, defensiveness. And we just want to invite people to, like, be on this journey with us um, to keep an open mind. Um, And yeah, to proceed with, with curiosity and and generosity as much as you can, as we grapple with these hard to talk about, um, topics. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, feel free to drop us a line at, um, fucking canceled at gmail.com, but there's no you in fucking because Gmail wouldn't let us. And there's two L's in canceled because we're Canadian. (laughs) Um, okay. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Je suis un OG.